Hello authors, I'm Joanne Morell, children's and young adult fiction writer and author of short non-fiction for authors. Thanks for joining me for the Hybrid Author Podcast, sharing interviews from industry professionals to help you forge a career as a hybrid author, both independently and traditionally publishing your books. You can get the show notes for each episode and sign up for your free author pass over at the Hybrid Author website to discover your writing process, get tips on how to publish productively and get comfortable promoting your books at www.hybridauthor.com.au. Let's crack on with the episode. Glenn B. Swift is a Western Australian storyteller. He has been performing professionally in schools, libraries, theatres and other public spaces in and around the city since 1988. He has toured for Public Libraries WA from Albany to Kananara and most places in between. Glenn has heard some of his stories retold in a classroom by a high school student who heard them from his grandmother. He has toured schools in Chile, Peru, Argentina and Uruguay and even at the Reykjavik Public Library on successive visits in English. Sometimes he gets to practice in his qualification as a teacher of the Alexander Technique in these countries and many more in Europe. Wow, welcome to the Hybrid Author Podcast, Glenn. Thank you, Joanne. Great to be part of your podcast and thank you very much for welcoming me and inviting me to be part of it. Oh, you're welcome. That is quite an extensive bio. How did you get into performing and writing in the first place? Ah, I'm so <laughs> pleased you asked. <laughs> Once upon a time, a long time ago. I, I started um, performing because in, some, in primary school, I remember I must have had a, a, a yen for it anyway. Because in anything, whenever there was a narrator required for anything in primary school, the teacher always pointed at me and I was the narrator. Then in high school, we did speech and drama as a subject, and I took that and enjoyed it. And in year 11 of my high school, we did a play, and I got cast in one of the major roles and just had a ball with it. On the strength of that, when I started at university to do a BA with a journalism major, I took some theatre units just for the sheer fun of it. And what I discovered in a short time of being a teenager of 17, 18, was that the theatre department at the university had much better parties than the journalism department. (laughs) And so essentially that pretty much... I think, how I became an actor. How I became a storyteller? Well, that's that's more. There's there's more detail there, but I could run on or I could... um, Feel free to ask me. I mean, I could just run on and tell you how the story... (laughs) That's that's an interesting... Yes, yes, please. I became a storyteller because of a phone call. I was... I was. I just finished my training in the Alexander Technique. I'd come. I, I did my finished my theatre major at university, but was hanging about in a fairly directionless life in my early twenties. When I was more or less directed by a couple of benevolent souls towards the Whopper acting course, and the director of the course allowed me to do a an, an audition after the auditions had closed because he'd seen me in a play and thought well, this guy might be right. I did an audition and was welcomed into the theatre department, the, the course at one. Only lasted there for a year because it wasn't for me in the end, but I picked up on this thing called the Alexander Technique, which was part of the found was one of the foundation units of the course and was for many years at Wapa. Um, on the I loved those lessons so much. I kept having them after I left. A fortuitous meeting. There's been lots of fortuitous meetings in my life. <laughs> a fortuitous meeting with a fellow who worked for the Arts Council uh, at a dance performance. He said, how come you've never applied for a training grant to go and study theatre in London or something? And I said, well, no, I've kind of done that, tried that, done that, no. And then words came out of my mouth to the effect, 
I wouldn't mind training to be a teacher of the Alexander Technique. And I don't know, the thought hadn't really occurred to me before, and it was a bit like it just came out. And um, he, I made an appointment to see him, and he showed me how to make an application. And I had letters of support from Whopper and the ballet company and the opera company. And upshot is that the Arts Council paid for me to go to Sydney for three years to do my training. And it was a very expensive training at the time. And at the end of that, uh, Jeff Gibbs, who was then the director of WAPA, created a position for me when I came back. So I, I, that was all pretty magic, really, and um, happy, happy meetings. Mm. Now, we come to the storytelling, <laughs> because I just got back to Western Australia and was waiting for my job at WAPA to start. It was sort of January or something. And we go back to the year 1988. Now, um, just think of the cost of a pint of milk or something in 1988, and you'll get what I'm about to tell you. Some friends of mine were being paid by Maya $80 an hour wow. to be clowns. $80 <laughs> an hour to be clowns in 1988. It was a lot of money. And I said to them, who do I talk to? They said, you talk to the marketing lady. I talked to the marketing lady, and I became an $80 an hour clown for those school holidays. Then some a couple of months later, just before the school holidays or a few weeks before the school holidays in March or whenever it was, she called me and said, "Can you? we want to put a storyteller into the children's book department at Maya for the school holidays. Can you be a storyteller? I said, are you paying $80 an hour? <laughs> she said, yes. And I said, I'm a storyteller. <laughs> and that's exactly how it started. I sat in the bath for a couple of weeks, sat in the bath for a couple of weeks at night reading Grimm's fairy tales and thinking out how I could tell them with the participation from the audience. Started doing that in these school holidays. Um, it went very well. I got great audiences, uh, two shows a day. They kept me on every Saturday for two shows on Saturdays. And then eventually a, a, um, a school librarian said, can you come and do this at my school? And that's how I began through that. She called other mates down in Mandra. I did more schools. And then somehow I found my way into the library system of Western Australia. And since then, the library system of Western Australia has been very, very good to me and kept me frequently employed as a storyteller. Wow. So you just never look back. That is a fantastic story in its own right. <laughs> nice bits of happenstance that link together and there and created this parallel career for me. So since my late 20s, I've had a two, you know, two careers, Alexander Technique yep. and storytelling. Yeah. And um, and they've both kept me well employed and uh, well occupied and plenty of creative impetus there mm -hmm. so there's you know there's always that meant I did a lot of reading a lot of research created my own stories on commission sometimes there was various stories were commissioned I've had stories commissioned for WA week and I have stories commissioned for refugee week and one thing or another so I've created material along the way including of course my ghost story which was for yeah. a ghost story concert wow. that was being held down on a golf course in Point Walter. There was um, a fella who was organising these ghost story concerts once a year, a big picnic event. And um, and the, the picnics, all the families would come along, put down blankets and what have you on the golf course. And uh, there was a spotlight and a microphone and a bit of a stage. And I was asked to perform this, so I set about creating a ghost story. Oh. Eventually, I created three of them all together. Wow, that's fantastic. And we'll definitely touch on that more later. Um, just backtracking a little bit, uh, can you tell us, for those who don't know, and I had only discovered this through your website as well, what the Alexander Technique is? Uh-huh. <laughs> the Alexander Technique is a, is a technique for performance coordination. Uh, it's taught in... Well, it still is taught in WAPA, but in reduced um, contact. 
Uh, but still, it's taught in RADA. Major music, major drama and music schools around the world have an Alexander Technique component, an Alexander Technique teacher in them. When I started at WAPA, a guy called Nigel Rideout, who um, created the field course, had been given essentially a blank checkbook to create the course. And he, as part of his blank checkbook, he'd been told um, it's got to be as good as NIDA and as good as VCA. It has to be national, like it has to be a national course. And so he said, and he had previously been director of, not rather, the um, Lambda, London Academy of Music and Drama in London, which is just a, one of the good acting schools, and said, we've got to have an Alexander Technique teacher. So he they arranged for an Alexander Technique teacher to move with his family from London to come and teach in the theatre course at Wapa. And that was the year I started there in 1983. And the lessons were something, as I understood them then, something to do with posture, coordination, and how to stand up and speak. What happened was, to begin with, not very much. <laughs> it was just like a man standing me up, sitting me down, moving my shoulders, moving my arms, changing the balance of my head a little bit. But after the third lesson, and I recall this very, very distinctly, I left the room and it was like my feet weren't touching the carpet, literally walking on air. It was just, that was the feeling, like feeling like I was, you know, a centimetre, my feet weren't touching the floor. And then after that, I had, each week we would have these lessons, uh, individual lesson, and I just had increasing sense of what you would call, what people call in the abstract, centeredness, balance, being inside yourself, vulnerability but strengthful at the same time, and just a sense of being inside my own body and feeling its potential for performance, which was just extraordinary and very addictive, which of course led me eventually to becoming a dealer. <laughs> so, um, so, uh, so I became a teacher, and, and that was anyway. That was how I got into the Alexander technique. And so the Alexander technique is performance coordination based on a change of balance of the head and the reflexive extension of the spine, and therefore the opening of the thoracic capacity, integration of the arms and legs into a um, pattern of movement which is what would you call it more graceful, more organised than that which often passes for normal. Mm -hmm. Okay. And how do you feel feel that's helped you with your performance and how does that help with performance? Just immensely. It's meant I have, I've had the stamina because when people are poorly coordinated, they do things like lose their voice, get very tense. I don't say, you know, it doesn't mean that, Everyone doesn't get a bit nervous and a bit tense before a performance because that's perfectly normal. But if it becomes debilitating, that's because the, the neck stiffened up so much that the vocal mechanism and the ability of the ribs to keep elastic in their expansion has been affected. So that's why people lose their breath and lose their voice if they're very nervous or if they're very tired or if, they, if the business of speaking is very stressful for them. Because I had the Alexander technique in me, underneath me, and with me, it meant I could perform what is to me now extraordinary schedule. So when I started getting book weekends, I could I'd be doing you know, five perform five performances a day was nothing. Um, uh, six, sometimes seven, because I do. You know, I do five in a school and then one in a library after school and then one in the library in the evening as well, and sometimes up to seven performances a day. Generally, these performances are 45 minutes to an hour. And I could do this for I could do this for a week and sometimes more and and keep it up without losing my voice. So that's one way the Alexander technique is definitely helping. And the other way is that. I've been able to 
um, develop my technique, if you like, for supporting a choice of vocal ranges and styles. That is my, my ability to do funny voices and sustain them. Um, so, in which is a great technique for storytellers, for example. So I can just yeah. <laughs> make myself funny and and sustain it somehow. Yeah. Do you? How often do you still practice the technique? Do you have to keep on going practicing it, or are you just? No, it's, it's in you now. <laughs> it's, it's moment to moment and daily. So moment to moment is every time I think of myself. The first thing I think is right here. What I what do I not want to do with myself? And what I don't want to do with myself is stiffen, shorten, and hold, as in you know. So it's really a thought which is about remembering what not to do with yourself. Um, it's un, it's a, the Alexander technique is, is largely a process of unlearning because the balanced in, balance and elasticity in our frame, in our body, in our breathing, in our balance it's always been there since we're children and we can observe it in children we bounce we fall over we get up again and it becomes of course less reliable as we get older as we become more accustomed to driving cars sitting in lounge chairs all the looking at staring at computer screens all those things that work against the flexibility of the human body but the principle upon which the flexibility is based is never lost. So it can be recovered. And that's what Alexander Technique is. Alexander Technique is a means of unlearning, habits of miscoordination which we've developed, which get in the way of our body's ability to naturally perform. Wow. Yeah, which is so, it's, that's why it's good for musicians, singers, dancers, actors. And why a large chunk of my private practice is bad backs and stiff necks. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it sounds, sounds amazing. Is it, is, it, is, is it something that you incorporate into, you know, a ritual when it comes to your performing? Do you do those exercises yeah. beforehand? or? There is, if on, on my website, <laughs> there's, a, there's a little page called What Can I Do to Help Myself? And describes a really simple process. And there's a picture as well, where you rest your head on a little stack of paperback books, put your back onto a nice supportive surface like a carpet or something, put your knees up and your feet flat so that they're, you know, so you're lying down with your, with your knees up and your feet on the floor, head supported, and literally just put your thoracic capacity, or if you want to say your back, your chest, your shoulders, your lower back, your hips, um, you give it up to gravity. And because we're not made of cement and steel, our bodies, when we have our back on the floor and our head supported so that our necks aren't locked back and the, and the knees up so the lower back isn't locked um, into, a, into, that, into a contraction, then the gravity will open up the back, widen the shoulders, open the ribs, open the chest, and gravity itself will do that work of helping us let go of the holding, which normally restricts our breathing. And when that happens, the spine gets longer, the body opens up, and it feels really nice. Now, I do that absolutely every day. Right. And, um, and it's certainly something I would do as a uh, preparation for performance. Mm. And what are some of the other things that you do in preparation for performance? Is there any, you know, do you have a, a little word with yourself? This is going to be happening. You're this person now, like a, a little bit of a routine before you step out onto wherever you're performing? I tend to be quietish because if, it, if it's a big show, like I'm, ste I'm stepping out in front of a, you know, a thousand people or something, or, um, yeah, that sort of thing. I, I mean, some people kind of jump up and, and jump around and get lively. I tend to start by being fairly quiet and just making sure that I can locate myself inside myself. Now, that's all a bit abstract, I know, but it's pretty much what meditation and yoga and all sorts of things are based on. Mm. So 
if you stop for a moment and, and ask that, you know, rather abstract question, am I inside myself or am I so so completely in response to the stimulus of the fear or the audience or the noise of the sound of the lights or the whatever that you, you know, they, we have language for this, which is, you know, people lose themselves. They lose themselves or they lose a sense of themselves or they start looking like they're trying too hard or something. And they lose authenticity. That's what we can say. Because people who can speak to a crowd and yet remain inside themselves. Are the thing, that's, these are the hallmarks of what we generally describe as authenticity. Yeah? Like they, when people are with themselves and inside themselves, it's speaking, we call it, say, speaking from the heart or something. But there's also, it has a particular magic effect on an audience. If you can, be inside, if you can stay with yourself and inside yourself as you speak, the audience has this thing which really good performers do and audiences report. It, it, even if they're an audience of 5,000, they say, it felt like that performer was speaking to me or singing to me or connecting with me. And that is possible if it's, it's a talent, but it's also a technique. Mm. And the technique is very much part of the talent. And yeah. some people have it naturally, but it can be learned. Absolutely, it can be learned to some extent. Wow. Yeah. And does do that you, make sense? Yes, yeah, no, it does. Do you, you obviously said you, you stay quite quiet. Do you do any uh, voice preparation or voice exercises if you're talking to big crowds of, say, thousands? Do you Not, need to do anything to prepare yourself, voice? I don't, well, I, what I don't, I, I might go a bit of... <laughs> I might just kind of get my tongue and my lips moving. A, bit. a little bit of that, but not to the extent that I'm going to start making a big effort about it. Um, but I might sing a little bit. I'd you know, do, sing some arpeggios, for example, just to get things moving. If I'm going to focus on anything before I start speaking, it'll be um, breathing into my upper back, opening up my ribs at the back by deliberately breathing into them because that is very, very good. You don't want to lose your back. As soon as you lose your back, you lose your voice. Um, so you, what the voice teachers might call um, rib support or support of the breath. And that's a quite a, that's a real thing. You really can breathe in, think about breathing into the ribs at your back. And it's not necessarily that you'll suddenly invent a new exercise for yourself. But as soon as you think of breathing into your back, breathing into your ribs at the back, you will circumvent the thing that happens by habit when you're not thinking about it. And the thing that happens by habit when you're not thinking about breathing back into your ribs is that you tend to lift your chest and pull your back ribs forward and therefore shorten your breath and shorten the, um, the activity of the ribs and, and make the business of speaking much harder than it should be. So those are the things I might think about. Um, other than that, uh, no. Yeah, well, that's a lot. That's a lot lot to kind of be preparing yeah. and stuff. So uh, you, you did touch on breathing and into the back. And um, do you have any tips for authors and, and people who want to perform about posture during performance, obviously, to have shoulders back and be quite I, open? I notice, yeah, I notice sometimes on the, um, on the squibby, um, Facebook page uh, and, uh, or the CBCAWA Facebook page, which you would be familiar with, they're for authors who are doing schools visits for the first time, ask questions, you know, what, how, how do you handle nerves? Should I just, you know, what size group should I be looking to speak towards? And, uh, and of course, I would always suggest that well, don't start with um, don't start don't start with five hundred in a gymnasium. 
if you can help. And chances are a first-time author won't be. If you if you do, if you just if you happen to have a huge hit with your first book and you, you are speaking to 500 kids in a gym, make sure you know how to use a microphone. There's an extraordinary number of public speakers who really have very poor microphone technique. And what I say to anyone, I, I always, if I'm working with children and microphones, I always say to them, speak to it like an ice cream. <laughs> and they get it. Kids get it straight away. They know what they, if I say speak to it like an ice cream, they know. Now, adults, of course, will tend to hold a microphone. And um, and I know you can see this now because we've got a video connection, but <laughs> yeah. we're on the podcast. But adults will tend to speak to the audience, but the microphone will wave all over the place because they'll go, well, I'm holding the microphone. Isn't that enough? Mm. And they'll point it at their nose or at their ear or something, and it becomes pretty useless. And at the same time, this, uh, if it's a fixed microphone, if someone's working at a lectern, then I and you've got a lectern mic, I always say point the microphone at your nose before you begin to speak. And if you pointed the microphone at your nose, that will generally collect the sound if you're not moving too far from the lectern. But with a handheld mic, talk to it like an ice cream. And of course, you can use the microphone because you can. Get up close to it and you can make noises. <laughs> and, and microphones can be very, very useful. I tend not to use them in performance because um, I generally I'm, I'm dealing, I'm with audiences of 200 or less. And if it's in a library or a double classroom or something, I can generally, I, I, I'd like to move about and use my hands. So I'd rather have all my hands free and my body free, so rather than yeah. be held up by the microphone um, for uh, for the purposes of performance. Yeah, I've I've been so, to one of your performances before, and I think um, I've seen you with swords and dressed up in all sorts of costumes with props and things. Um, do you does that help you get into character to you, you know your props and costumes? So would you recommend that to authors to, to a little bit helps. Yeah. A little bit helps, but uh, it's very easy for the props and costumes to get in the way as well. Ah. <laughs> there's um there's no there's no substitute for preparation. Know your stuff. Um I but costumes are good because kids will, a kid's audience, no matter what age, you know, whether they're um, whether they're four years old or twelve years old, a kid's audience will will assume that you are what you say you are, and they're prepared to suspend disbelief to go, well, if you're dressed like a pirate, I'm perfectly happy to believe you can act like a pirate. So. So dressing up is dressing up is a useful thing, and I and I certainly and and even wear and even dressing up in ordinary clothes. So yes, pirate, jester, all kinds of old costumes that I and Mad Hatter, town crier, I'm just a wizard. I'm just trying to think of all the various things because I've got you collect costumes over the year. I've got all these things sitting in my. Um, Oh, and a zoo um, I, is it the zoo? Um, they're not the zoo one. The, yeah, the zoo. Yeah, so I had I was using that. I've been using that for the last couple of weeks. At a, a, there's a gallery space in Claremont where they're having the uh, mini. Uh, it's called Relics. It's for a, it's a curtain opener for for the Scribblers Festival, which is coming up in Claremont um, fairly soon. And so I've got a pith helmet and a and a safari outfit. Safari suit, essentially. And so that means I can, hello, welcome to, and be a sort of a sort of slightly strange David Admirates kind of character. <laughs> so that's one. But in ordinary clothes, I have a costume that I wear to schools. If it's just a, a played up schools visit, whether it's a, um, a pre-primary or year sevens or high school, I'll go in 
wearing a long sleeve white shirt with a collar, a tie, a waistcoat and matching trousers and a, um, and a Kubra hat. And that's been my kind of school's visit costume for many years because it looks a bit like the headmaster, the man who comes with a tie and a waistcoat or that sort of figure. Now, the marvellous thing about coming in looking very conservative in your dress is that you can subvert it. And uh, and 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 I like I, I I sometimes use words and twist their little minds <laughs> because you can subvert the the what they think they're seeing by by being silly. At the same time, I um I've also you know some for some events I'll wear a Hawaiian shirt because it's appropriate. Yeah, that's fantastic. But, but costumes important, and what you wear is important. So absolutely, putting if you're doing a school's visit, putting thought into what you're wearing and what you appear to be, very very important, mm-hmm. and uh, and then how you use the costume, whatever it is, um, is uh, yeah significant. Oh, that's fantastic. I, I never really thought of it that way about what the kids can see or the audience can see. Really, it's more mm-hmm. thinking about how you present or your persona rather than. Yeah, I think on the exterior. So that's fantastic. You sort of touched on this earlier, but what would your advice be to writers who, you know, first time authors as well, who struggle with public speaking? Uh, They have a major fear getting up in front of crowds. It is, like you said, it is good to have a little bit of nerves and that's human nature. Uh, Did you ever experience that in your younger years or any advice how people can kind of bypass that and just push through? can't say. I mean, I, I had the first time I, I did stand-up comedy, I was incredibly nervous, and that is. I, and I didn't make any career. I did. I was an. I was an, I started a stand-up comedy club about thirty odd years ago, and I was the MC. And I used to work as the MC because I meant I didn't have to pay an MC. And uh, I'd be pleased if I got three three jokes, and then I'd get off. Three, three laughs, I was off, and I just introduced the first act. I was a very bad MC. Because traditionally, the comedy MC is meant to sort of do, you know, to warm up the audience properly, which I didn't. So nerves is not uncommon. But what I would say to anyone, let's say a first-time author who's going into a school, have an idea of what you're going to say, but don't prepare too much. Um, in fact, one of the really great pieces of advice I had from my Alexander Technique teacher in London, where I did some of my postgraduate training, a very, very, very experienced man, very experienced speaker, and his advice for Alexander Technique teachers that were going into libraries, for example, to do a talk about the Alexander Technique or a lecture demonstration for a group of people, his advice was, don't prepare. <laughs> and and there's what you don't want to do is go in with a rehearsed speech or a, or a rehearsed idea or a fixed idea of what you think should happen because a fixed idea comes across as a fixed body and what you want to be either as an Alexander Tech teacher who's doing a talk or a storyteller or an author who's going in to speak to a class you want to be responsive and you can't be responsive if you've got a fixed idea about what you're going to say and how you're going to say it. The, um, the, one of the best things, of course, you can do is having done, and always do a reading. I always say to authors, do a reading. Read your own stuff because authors will read their own. This is when I'm being an MC for a writer's festival or something. I always insist that the authors read. Because authors read their own material unlike anyone else will. And it sounds different. So I, um, I always encourage that. So do a reading, do some talking, but then go to questions. Encourage questions. And uh, you, you probably have seen other authors, experienced authors, experienced with you know, a half dozen books or a dozen books who've done lots of school visits and lots of public speaking. They'll often say, don't leave questions till the end. 
feel free to interrupt me. When you've got a question, put your hand up. And that's very, very common with good speakers. They're ready to take questions anytime because the questions will give them the impetus to, to response and to be responsive. So I would absolutely encourage that in nervous authors who are visiting schools for the first time to encourage questions even from the get-go. Yeah, I think always um, do a reading. Yep. And be and be and and set yourself up to be responsive rather than have a fixed idea of what you're doing and how it should go. Yeah, no, those are fabulous tips. I think especially first-time authors and stuff, they they would probably feel like they had to have it down pat because going in front of people one of the fears is you're you you're going to go blank or you're you're you know mm. you're going to forget everything so you have to kind of memorize it and then also the fear of no one will have any questions <laughs> then you're oh but uh no that's that's wonderful advice there yeah and you can certainly set up for questions you can i i think you can you can create a questioning atmosphere in your audience um yeah I, I think you can and you know if, if they don't ask questions you can ask yourself questions yeah, fair enough. <laughs> that's or good. the teacher will, the teacher will help especially for nervous for nervous performers nervous school visitors mm -hmm. the teacher will help teach yeah. will and 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 be prepared of course um for the questions which are always going to come especially from a young, a junior primary or middle primary audience, where do you, and this, this is always a point of great hilarity amongst um, children's book week, uh, book week visitors. And, uh, and when, which we joke about, I, whenever I see, whenever Norman Jorgensen gets up at an event, um, it's, it's always with great pleasure and ask for questions. I always ask where do you get your ideas from? Because that's always that's the that's the yeah. question that always comes up from junior and middle primary. Where do you get your ideas from? Are you famous? <laughs> Are you do you make lots of money as a children's author? Are you rich? Those sorts of things. So it's it's worth having a creative answer mm. to the question. Are you famous? Are you rich? Do you make lots of money? Where do you get your ideas yeah. from? Because those questions will always come up. Yeah. And there will always be surprise questions. Yeah. Well, you know, even just having those questions as a base, like you said, if, if it is um, crickets, yeah. then you could say you could pose those questions okay. yourself. And, Some and of you may be wondering <laughs> if I'm rich. Yeah. I, you too. Uh, you would not believe how rich I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you, I, I write nonfiction, and many of our listeners might also. So when it comes to that, when it's kind of more serious topics and things, and authors want to give more of a performance with for maybe an older audience and not something that's more character-driven, do you have any tips to offer more of a performance in that setting, more of a speaking, I suppose, presenting, rather than characterization. Presenting nonfiction. Mm. Well, obviously the reading, there's a thing. Always, 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 always do a reading. Yep. The, the, the response to questions things applies. And if you've done a reading, then, then the audience has something to ask you questions about. Tips to make a performance. Yeah. I know now. If can I talk about particular authors like Christy Byrne, for example? Yeah, you can Christy talk about Byrne, her. Uh, she does nonfiction. Mm -hmm. She will. I. She will often find ways of illustrating her stuff. If it's science, she will take in illustrations with her. If um, I know that Norman. See, and illustrators, anyone that can can draw, of course, you're, you're way ahead because you can do a drawing of a something, do a drawing yep. of something, and yep. the business of drawing becomes a fabulous event uh, for adults or children. Norman Jorgensen will always have a really fascinating slideshow 
Um, so he take, I guess he takes his own data projector. There's a data projector in the room that we can just stick his USB into. That's a very, very good thing. Have, have stuff on a USB or on a computer that can go into a data projector so that there's a few pictures to look at. The pictures themselves uh, um, can become a talking point, illustration, and also a, a springboard for questions yep. on nonfiction topics. Yep. Absolutely. Everyone, and generally, I can't think of any yeah. nonfiction topic. Well, where you can't find weird and interesting illustrations, photographs and memorabilia on the internet these days, which are easy enough to look up, but your audience won't have seen, no matter what the topic is you're looking to address. Yeah, no, fantastic. So, so providing the correct emotion for whatever the topic is, the themes of the nonfiction and, and having stuff to support that is, yeah. is your recommendation. Yeah, and even humour. I mean, and yeah. that's very. It, I mean, we could name anything at all. We could say um, exercise bicycle, and and if we go uh, funny pictures, ex, funny images, exercise bicycle, there'll be two thousand come up, and you can select a few of those. And if you're going to talk about exercise bicycles or something that happened in an exercise bicycle, you'll have immediately. You've got a couple of funny. You've got a couple of giggles. Yeah. Well, you're, you're a celebrant as well as an author and storyteller and teacher. Do you apply the same energy to all those roles? So when you are a celebrant, do you have that performance energy when you're marrying people or not so much? Yes, I think I do. It's not, but the celebrant, the celebrant gig, and I'll call it a gig because it is a gig, same as storytelling is a gig and same as teaching Alexander is a gig. It's a, it's a beautiful gig. And I came to it because I'd seen it done badly. And when I'd seen a celebrant do a dodgy job or do what I thought was a bad job, I thought to myself, people getting married probably once in their lives, they deserve better. What, they what, deserve was, what was the bad experience that you saw witnessed? One of the one I, the one I, the one I generally use for illustrations is, my when I was nine, no, no, I was no, I was well into my twenties, in in my middle to late twenties, and I went to my sister's wedding, and this curmudgeonly, curmudgeonly, crusty celebrant, crusty old celebrant, I don't know where they'd found him. There wasn't a lot of celebrants around at the time, I suppose. They found him, and the first, for some part of his the service, was him saying, expounding about. Young people these days just don't take marriage seriously. And this is while the bride and groom are standing there and he's going, young people, they don't take marriage seriously enough. And so he decided to have a little platform. And I thought that was something. So telling off. Um, yeah. And then, and then just if someone doesn't, if, you're not, if someone's not a very practised communicator, and not all celebrants are, because you know, celebrants are people that like me that think marrying people is a really nice idea. Not everyone has performance skills. And, and so you can see it done awkwardly. Anyway, what I bring to it is a, a, a desire to be very clear and also to focus the, a, a marriage ceremony on the bride and groom. And that's a that's partly that's the thing about staying inside yourself. There's um there's a famous the famous there's a well-known radio personality, a couple of them actually, in Perth that also do celebrancy work. And it tends to be rather dramatic and rather ebullient and rather fantastical. And it, but it tends to be about them, and once you once the once the once the celebrant starts to show how special they are, they take away from the bride. The the talent I attempt and generally I think succeed in managing is to make a performance of 
the wedding ceremony that makes everyone feel like they're connected and involved and focused, but focused on the couple. Even though I'm, in, I'm the one in the middle talking, I make my focus the, 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 the bride and groom and keep it on them. Mm. And, uh, and that's, yeah. yeah, that's the... That's my technique there. So, yeah. But I certainly do bring an element of performance, but it's not a kind of yada, yada, yada. Yeah, not, not like your children's fiction performances, I suppose. No. You know. no. no. <laughs> children's fiction performances, and this is something I'm very happy to share. For, I don't know, the last 10 years ago or so, I've begun singing in my storytelling. Now, I sing, in a, I sing lots of my stories in a kind of recitative, what you would call a recitative voice. Uh, in opera, it's called recitative. Recitative, that's part which is not aria singing. So you're not singing arias, but you're singing something else. You might go, you know, Don Giovanni, I believe he's come. He's coming to collect the bride. <laughs> so that vocal quality. I bring to my storytelling. And that was because there's a story I tell called Hats for Sale. And I wanted to differentiate between the bits that the audience had to respond to and copy and the bits that were purely narrative. So I began to sing parts. And it was the, and the man with the hat, the man with the hat, he put the hats underneath the tree and he sat down underneath the tree and while he was asleep, the monkeys came to the, the, the and that became the narrative voice. And, I t and that worked so well, I took that singing narrative to lots of my stories, particularly for pre-primary, junior primary, I, and some middle primary, I sing the narrative voice part of the stories. Um, uh, example, what's an example? Anything is an example. There once was a time, a long time ago, in a land far away where and for example, Tiddalik the frog drank all the water in the land and he drank like this. And of course, you can step from that narrative, from that, that recitative voice, you can step into and funny voices and that sound effects and do you, ever, recommend. Yep. Do you ever invite the children to sing along with you in your, your singing narratives? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, and a really nice thing, a really lovely, lovely thing to do is, uh, and, and a, a thing I started doing with junior primary many, many years ago, was to start by going, good morning. And they, good morning, everyone. And of course, they come back with, good morning, Mr. And I would respond to that with, good morning, everyone. And then they'd come back with, good morning, Mr. And then I would come back with, good morning. <laughs> and good morning. That sort of interaction, call and response to, to bridge into my first story. Yeah, that's Stuff that, which is you know that once again that's kind of fun thing to do if I've got a suit and tile, because it's just yeah. it subverts the paradigm. Yeah, and it raises energy in the room as well and gets them all to attention uh, the audience. So no, that's fantastic. So you have yeah. published and uh, illustrated well uh, your own illustrated children's book through your own imprint, Swan River Gothic Press. Uh, tell mm. us a bit about the book, The Ghost in the Bell Tower, and why you chose to independently publish the story. I'd presented a couple of I presented this one, The Ghost in the Bell Tower, and and another one or two uh, manuscripts to a couple of publishers and hadn't got traction. And really, and, and truthfully, I knew that um, if I published, if I had something in print, it would open up another part of the market to me, which is that suddenly I wouldn't just be a storyteller, I'd be author storyteller. 
And it, it performed exactly as I hoped it would. In the first year or two of its publication, I was invited to a bunch of different writers' festivals. So, um, I, and that was the, and I'd already been to, you know, I'd been to a variety of writers' festivals and had been invited to writers' festivals many times over the years as a storyteller, but it gave me a reason to be invited back. And so I went back with my book to, um, to, yeah, to a half dozen writers' festivals and uh, appeared as an author, okay. author Glenn Swift. Yeah, uh, I still did. I still, I still, as a storyteller, and they, because they know they, the ones, the people that run the festivals know my strengths. So they say, "Great, Glenn, you you do one about your book, but also do some, just do some storytelling." But it, that was it. That we really, it was um, just for another feather in my cap. Yeah, it's and a beautiful book. Thank you. It's um. Oh. It, yeah, the design of it is really unique and um, quite gothic looking and, and presents the feel. Was that your idea? Did you have a hand in the, the design there or did you research yeah. it much? No, no, no. Believe it or not, I, um, I went to a community Facebook page in Fremantle that has um, a very big, big reach and said, I want to self-publish a story. I'm looking for an illustrator. So I had three or four people come back to me. I met with one of them who was a retired graphic designer who said, uh, not only will I um, do your illustrations, but I will design your book for you because I've got a printer I always work through. And, wow. and he did. Michael Adeen uh, did the illustrations, designed the book. I, um, I had... Um, a great, a good professional help. Otherwise, I engaged Deb Fitzpatrick, who's a um, notable YA, West Australian YA author, author. She became my proofreader and my sort of editor. Uh, that is to say, she would suggest um, edits and help me bang it into shape and stuff that needed to come out or go in or expand and that sort of thing. So I think that was a, a very very helpful, but I, I engaged her professionally. And the other person that gave me lots of help was Wendy Binks. Now, Wendy Binks, you may be aware, most I'm pretty sure the most successful self-published children's author in the country. Like we're talking her, her, her numbers are going to the hundreds of thousands. It's like she has put a lot of books out there. And, uh, and, and she sat down with me and basically told me, you know, stepped me through the ISBN and uh, various things that you need to do as a self-published author and how to do it and was just was full of good and useful advice. Mm, that's fantastic. So, yeah. Do you have, uh, what is your advice for the authors out there? This is the hybrid author podcast. So we like to independently publish and traditionally publish. Do you have advice for the authors who would like to independently publish? Any tips from your journey? You're fairly obviously not going to, in your, in your first run of 5,000, you're not going to make a lot of money. And, um, and so I think anyone that goes into publishing writing to, for the money is, um, is self-deluding. You've got to have some other really good motivator. Of course, we, you and I know that children's authors tend to make their, make their money on schools' appearances. That's, that's how it happens. Um, writers uh, of, of other kind of fiction or nonfiction might be more likely that they will be making their money hopefully on schools visit, but also on festivals, all of which is possible. So events. The, um, yeah, events. Yeah. I, do I have advice about whether to traditionally publish or self-publish? No. I think really it comes down to what's motivating you how good you are at selling things and how prepared you are to do the legwork. If you're going to go self-publishing, you've got to do, you, know, you might have a product that gets it into lots of, gets into libraries, gets into bookshops, gets it here and there. 
but then you've got to be prepared to do the legwork. The performance. <laughs> yeah, do the legwork. Uh, the, the performance, which is to go and see, you know, make sure it stays in stock, make sure it's being presented properly. And there's, yeah, there's, there's you, if you self-publish, you're creating a lot of, you're creating a job for yourself. Mm, and it's a, a job you need to have time for. Yeah, so you're not just the author, you're the publisher, you're, you're everything else, it's all hats. Um, so you're yeah. the designer who did the illustrations and obviously designed your book as well. What was the printing company he went through? Was that a local local print business as well? Yeah, uh, they, were, they were up in West Perth. And all I can tell you off the top of my head is, they're, is, they're out of, is that they, they, they closed shop. Oh. Um, um, I, so can't, you- I can't. For the life of me, tell you tell you um, the name of the printer. That's all right. Hours. So, do you are you in the market for a new printer now? Um, if you've got to be the one as the publisher who has to keep stock of whether the books are in stock where you sell them, or oh, um, well, I've got I've got plenty of stock. I've got copies. stock in boxes, and that, yeah. this is the thing: every self-published author is going to end up with lots of boxes of their own work. Yeah, and it's and because it. I had fan, I had a fantastic idea that I would clear my first print run in uh, in two or three years by selling at libraries and that. And of course, it doesn't work that fast. Yeah. Um, it doesn't work that fast. I, I I had I have a very good distributor, which is West Books. West Books distribute my my book into uh, schools and libraries, and uh, so they're they're always moving. But um, it's not going. It's just taking time. Let's say it comes down to how much work, how much work you're prepared to do yourself. Yep. And after the first year, I mean, I did I did lots of media in the first year and lots of press releases and and then after the first year or so, I I kind of lost a bit of steam on it because I don't know. It's it 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 was I had other things other things mm-hmm. to do with my time so. Yep. I still have a bunch of books in boxes, yeah. But they will con- they continue to sell and will continue to sell. Of course. Did you ever think about the publish on demand option? I didn't. I didn't, and I haven't, and I don't know much about that. So I've got no advice that I could possibly give. Yeah. I know that you can get stuff printed much more cheaply offshore. And, um, for example, Mark Greenwood and Franet Lassac, local authors, illustrators, they once when their rights for various stories reverted to them, they can they can they got their they then got their reprints done offshore where they could get um, things done for you know two dollars per unit as opposed to six dollars per year so that was sensible for them yeah so do you take when you go to your performances uh all of them or just specific ones do you take your books with you to to sell along with Um, paraphernalia from your business if if they're if they're relevant to the performance then i then i'll take i'll take it yes yep if it's if it's relevant to the performance and doing you know what's where i've sold plenty of books is at libraries um, so basically, asking, ask, ask, being asked to perform as a storyteller for seniors, and I'll include my ghost story and sell and sell uh, sell ghost stories there. Yes, yeah, that's fantastic. Well, Glenn, I could speak to you forever, and I would have a million hundred questions, but we have cut, run out of time. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. Can you please share where we can further discover more about you and your work? Oh, thank you very much indeed. Um, GlennBSwift.com. So uh, HTTPS or www.glennbswift.com will lead to my storytelling page, my celebrant page, my Alexander Technique page, and through the storytelling page, the Ghost in the Bell Tower, for example. and. Yes, inquiries are always welcome. Weddings, parties, anything, and schools performances always. Schools and libraries, my favourite things. 
Wonderful. Thanks so much, Glenn. Joanne, a great pleasure. And thank you very much for your questions. And thank you very much for the opportunity to share with your audience. You're welcome. That's the end for now, authors. I hope you're further forward in your author adventure after listening. And I hope you'll listen next time. Remember to head on over to the Hybrid Author website at www.hybridauthor.com.au to get your free author pass. It's bye for now.